Hello and welcome to the Denver Diatribe, a weekly discussion of culture, news, and stuff as it pertains to Denver, Colorado, the most astonishing metropolitan area between Aurora and Fort Lupton. This week on the show, beer wars heating up in Colorado, as well as Denver, is it living up to its beer potential? Also, we'll be talking about the disgruntled ex-Denver Post columnist Susan Green and what her departure says about the news culture at the our paper of record. With me in studio are Joel Warner, staff writer for Westward, Jared Jakang Mayer of FaceTheState.com, and Westward's very own beer man and managing editor Jonathan Shikes. Me, I am washed-up author and journalist John Dicker. Let's start with the beer wars. There's a very uh, convoluted bill going before the state house, is it, Jerry? Uh, the Senate. Senate. Uh, that would basically, well, why don't you explain it? Because you can break it down better uh, okay, than I can. Okay, so, so real quickly, Colorado has long, for the last 50 years, had these really bizarre laws uh, in terms of how alcohol is regulated and what types of um, entities are allowed to sell them. For example, uh, liquor stores are allowed to sell, um, you know, beer, wine, and uh, liquor and, and beer at full strength while convenience stores and supermarkets have to sell alcohol that is below, or beer, below 3.2%. And 3.2% beer is kind of an anomaly nationally. It, 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 you really don't see it anywhere else other than Colorado. But uh, what's, what's been going on now is this bill that is going before the Senate as a result of kind of a weird way that the convenience stores have tacked on this uh, law last year that will prevent restaurants from selling beer that is below 3.2%. And this isn't, I mean, this is just uh, beer like Odell's and some other beer that is just, it just happens to be below 3.2%. And it's all part of a strategy to kind of get the restaurants involved in this battle between the liquor stores and the convenience stores and the supermarkets. So it's uh, it's kind of a, a new twist on this entire convoluted standoff that we've had going on for years in the legislature. It's like the Battle of Five Armies in, in The Hobbit, except it's a battle of three lobbyists, right? Yeah, and I don't know who would be the Hobbit in this uh, situation. Maybe the uh, maybe the liquor store owners would be the Hobbit. <laughs> I assume I assume the convenience store workers would be like the goblins, or the guys never come out, you know, into like the daylight. Well, they're right? com- they're coming out now, and they're oh, that's they're, scary. They're I don't want to see that. Well, well, I mean, what do you guys think about uh, the way I've heard it posited is that. The victory for consumers would be for grocery stores and convenience stores to be allowed to sell whatever kind of beer they want. Um, is there a downside to that besides small liquor stores going out of business? And is that just kind of the creative destruction, as uh, Thurston Veblen, I think, said that? You know, not to get all freaking high church on you. Um, well, the, the funny thing about this is this has always been a battle between all of these different constituencies, these retailers. And it has nothing to do with consumers and what consumers actually want. And Joel, Joel brought some treats for us this morning. Oh, yeah. Uh, why don't you explain uh, <laughs> what we have going on here? Thank you. Yeah, just to start out this whole thing, I didn't have a dog in this fight until about 9.30 this morning. <laughs> because, because since we have the Colorado Beer Man here in the studio and we were talking so much about beer, I naturally assumed that should we bring in some Guinness for the podcast because it's Breakfast of Champions and we're clearly all champions. Uh, however, and it's totally local. Totally local. Totally <laughs> local. Unfortunately, I stopped by two liquor stores. Neither one was open yet because for some reason, I guess they they think people only want to buy beer after like eleven in the morning, which seems not at all the case, especially on Super Bowl Sunday. So I went to two different convenience stores, and the closest I could come to the Breakfast of Champions is a Miller High Life High Life uh, Tall Boy, 
and one uh, Budweiser and Clamato, also called a Chalada, which is a Budweiser beer, for those who don't know, with natural flavor and certified color. So that's what we're drinking today. Uh, but, certified but color. But if you look at the very, very, you won't see uh, the 3.2% listed anyone on the can, but if you look at the very top, I'm looking at the top of this Miller High Life, and you can see sort of imprinted in the top alcohol by weight. Not more than not 3.2. more point, 3.2 percent. So we're definitely not going to be getting drunk enough off these things. Yes. Well, the, the other, we'll get our tomato. The the other question I have is, I mean, so if the if the grocery store convenience store lobby wins, you know, what is the, does that mean? Most of the smaller liquor stores will go out of business, and even if like because some of the grocery stores aren't going to have the aisle space to carry that much larger of a beer selection. And they still, I mean, not to sound snobby, but Alverson's, King's, Supers, and, uh, you know, the other, Safeway, they're still going to, they may, they'll have some New Belgium and so, some Odell's, but they're not going to, anyone who's even remotely serious about beer, they're not going to have that great a selection. That's my guess. Well, what's interesting about this year is that it is just about beer. Um, the the supermarkets aren't talking about wine and they're not talking about spirits. They, they want to be able to carry uh, full-strength beer. From that perspective, the liquor stores, you know, they may have, they may stay in business because of that. I think beer is low margin compared to, to wine and spirits, and uh, so I think they're trying to make this simple when you talk about when you just talk about beer and making it equal for, for everyone. So I, I don't know that this particular law would, would have a huge effect on on liquor stores if it did go into effect. But Jonathan, isn't that the big complaint from I, I've heard kind of small. Uh, Colorado brewers even get involved in this fight and taking the side of the liquor stores who say if all of a sudden every single supermarket convenience store can carry all the types of beer that they want, then consumers are going to be going there. It's going to be putting these smaller and not so small liquor stores like some of the you know enormous liquor stores out of business and or just reduce their capacity. And it's 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 going to, if those places are put out of business, then the supermarkets aren't going to be carrying like the wide selection of all the different smaller craft beers. Is that? Do you think that that's a, a valid argument, or you think that would actually happen if supermarkets were allowed to carry regular full strength beer? Well, that, that is their argument that that if liquor stores go out of business, they they will have fewer venues to sell their beer in, and the liquor stores will be competing on price more with the supermarkets, so that they may not want to carry the high end beers quite as much. The the microbreweries, the the craft brewers in Colorado have come on, have kind of come on a nice strategy of uh, seasonal beers. They make a lot of money by selling a wide lineup of beers and then changing that over and over, so people continue to come back to try new things. Um, and they've managed to get on the shelves in in liquor stores, uh, even the smaller ones, um, quite a bit. Th- that is that is not something they want to see. They don't want to see the liquor stores going out of business. And you're right. I don't think that the supermarkets are going to carry a huge selection of craft beers, and and they may not want to carry the seasonals. Uh, they're they're going to carry a couple of brands, uh, Dale's Pale Ale or um, you know Fat Tire from New Belgium. They'll, you know some of those smaller stores will will just carry a few a few brands. So it, it it may be an issue for for the craft brewers if if liquor stores do go out of business. On the other hand. Other liquor stores, uh, you know, may take that up. And w- when I lived in California, there were liquor stores all over the place, and they sold all kinds of craft beers. And you would go, you would go to your liquor store to to buy the craft beer because it wasn't really at the supermarkets. Um, so they carved out that niche for themselves. Yeah, and they did. Even though the supermarkets could carry those things, it was kind of like, well, if I want, if I'm a really a beer consumer, then I'm going to go to those liquor stores, and the liquor stores cater to that. 
I, I think so. And the liquor stores that go out of business may be the ones that only sell Bud and Miller anyway, uh, because that that's really where they where they may lose their business. Does this law change the other law, wherein you know if you are a grocery store chain, only one of your because like Target, one their store in in uh, Glendale has they have beer and wine, but there any of the other Target stores can't do that. You can only have one. Same thing with Costco. The one in Arvada has the liquor store next to it or with it, but none of the other Costcos do. Is that will that law still stay in effect? Well, the the, the law that's been introduced right now from the from the restaurant industry um is 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 focused on the the restaurant industry, industry and their being able to sell a beer of any alcohol percentage. Um so but the other sides are going to get involved here. The supermarkets are going to get involved. Uh, they, they haven't. They haven't yet this year. Um, the convenience stores are going to get involved, but that's what they'll want. They'll want to be able to sell uh, beer at every single outlet. And does that pave the way for Trader Joe's? That's the other that <laughs> that most the important other. question. I mean, all this all this thing does is just you have this 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 careful balance between all these different groups, and everyone's trying to angle and fight. And all of a sudden, this is just a shot that brings in the very powerful restaurant association into it. And all of a sudden, like Jonathan said, all these other people are going to get involved, and all the lobbies are going to be fighting. And it, I mean, it could result in some sort of compromise where it would change the uh, another Colorado blue law, which says that that essentially chains can't have multiple liquor licenses. So you only have one, you know, one Costco, one King Supers that just actually opened up in uh, in Glendale too, with with having a, a pretty yep. humongous selection of beer and wine, and one other things, and that's why you know, theoretically a, a Trader Joe's could come in and have one Trader Joe's with a liquor license, but for them it's not worth it to, to you know, set up shop here if they can only open one liquor licensed Trader Joe's. So, Jared, if I understand what you're saying correctly, this in some ways is kind of like the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand. That will launch the World War One of the beer wars here Yeah, in or to make it more contemporary, I mean, this could be the the Egypt riot type scenario where it could tip the balance between all of these different uh, well, really Tunisia, Tunisia, yeah, Tunisia. it would be Tunisia. Yeah. You know, if this goes, then so who knows what's so we on. theoretically could solve the entire Middle Eastern crisis right now just over the beer <laughs> wars, which is actually kind of wonderful for us at the podcast. I mean, why do we have such a weird system here in Colorado? Because we're a puritan. Well, because we're a puritanical country. And yeah, they came from they came from prohibition originally, and and the same kind of political jockeying that went on uh, then that is going on now, um, and uh, that that's where the three two three point two percent. Uh, and I don't know all of the details on on how that arose. Well, it was, but it was you didn't do your research before you pushed it up here, uh, Mr. Beerman. No, it, it, it was for eighteen-year-olds, right? Like people between well, the age of eighteen. You yeah, could go to I think I read bars, but then they got rid of that when they raised. The uh, the age to twenty one, but three two still kind of hung around. That would be really cute though if we could bring back these like, these three two bars that are like, just for like eighteen you know, year olds. Eighteen year olds that'd be so cute, right? They could play like, Sega Genesis in there, be like you know, be the like, kind of throwback, kind of like that. <laughs> it's, it, it goes back even further than that though. That the the three two law was, was um, came about because the politicians then were trying to either stave off prohibition or come out of it slowly. Um, there there was some reason why that why three two even came about in the first place, and then it became. Uh, uh, part of the 18-year-old thing, and I uh, turned 18 before the laws changed, so I got to drink like crazy at places like Thirsties. Thirsties. And um, what was that like? I want to hear about Thirsties. Uh, Thirsties was just. Uh, uh, can we swear on the, on oh, the yes. podcast? Oh yes. Oh yeah. It was just a shit show. <laughs> we, you know, we would go in and we would get 3.2. We would each get two pitchers of Coors Light. 
um, and drink out of those instead of instead of a glass. <laughs> and uh, it was unbelievably cheap, and you know people were throwing up and dancing, and it, it was just it was amazing because if you drink enough three two beer, you're going to get just as drunk. <laughs> Wow, another good old day. That sounds awesome. I want to go to Thirsty's right now. All right, all right. That's all the that's all the college shit show reminiscing we have time for right now. We're gonna go to Susan Green. Well, another shit show. <laughs> Susan Green. Um, she was a Metro columnist for the Denver Post for how long was her tenure? It was it was a number of years, five or six years. Uh, I think it's only been about three years. Oh, okay, she's had her column. Uh, am I supposed to? Are you giving me the sign yeah, that I need I'm to drink? Yeah, saying that we're not drinking enough beer in celebration of our beer, right. of our beer Sunday, celebration of our beer Sunday morning. People not drinking enough beer in here. Get some motherfucking Miller High Life in this <laughs> joint from Do the Right Thing. But really, no, don't get any Miller High Life in this joint because it sucks. Um, uh, anyway, back to Susan Green. She was let go, or she no, she quit the the post, and then she had the, she's now writing for the Huffington Post, uh, Denver. Which is a weird sort of, that's a weird site. I mean, it's, it's a, uh, aggregator and their content. I mean, sometimes there's just the same stories stay up there for like three weeks. Um, and she had a, she had a, uh, column basically saying that I left the post because they're not really doing real journalism anymore. They, they're telling me too much. You're going too heavy on police brutality and illegal immigration. And basically saying that it's, it's too family friendly. The publishers are in bed with their advertisers. Uh, and politicians, and it's not doing real journalism in the sense of holding power accountable. That was her argument. It's tinged by the fact that she quit. You, I don't know how valid that is. You know, when someone quits and, and gets all disgruntled, you always have to take that with a grain of salt. What do you guys think? I guess my first response was talk is cheap. I mean, so I think we've seen like one column from her in the past couple of weeks from the Huffington Post, Denver. If she comes out saying that she was limited from being able to write all these like, huge stories about police or brutality, et cetera, et cetera, why haven't we seen 17 stories from her in the past two weeks on Huffington Post about all these huge things that she hasn't been allowed to write about at the Post? No, I, I, yeah, that that makes sense. I mean, yeah, proof is in the pudding. What will come next? I mean, the the it started a debate on the Huffington Post in the comments sections, which I, I feel like co- almost all comment sections these days are just the lowest level of humanity. <laughs> yes, they are. Even when the even when they're responding to a post that can, that that's well written, they, they always descend into partisan hackery and just an invitation uh, for morons to to spout endlessly. But it did raise the question of, I mean, how do you guys think the post is? Is it any good anymore? I mean, I barely read it. Well, I think the a lot of those comments, and you know, you see it a lot on a lot of other things. Michael Roberts wrote um, a piece about Susan Green's piece, and uh, a number of people come are leaving comments. You know, the post has just gone downhill. It's a sh- shadow of its former self. I don't even read it anymore. It's uh, and it's kind of become the the big bad guy that everyone wants to bash. My take on uh, Susan Green's sort of diatribe against uh, her former employer. Well, I'm kind of like, it'd be a lot easier for me to buy the her argument that the Post is being run by, you know, right-wing publishers and they're trying to do away with maybe more liberal or progressive voices in the paper if there weren't already several other columnists that are still on staff there, like Mike Litwin or Tina Griego. Uh, you know, they have written about some of these issues that she complained about, the um, you know death at the Denver County Jail recently, police brutality, 
you know, they do, they are covering these issues. I think that what people don't, aren't realizing is that there's just lots fewer reporters on staff to go out and cover all of those in-depth, in-depth things, plus also go and cover day-to-day stuff that's happening in the city. So I think that maybe some of the things that she might say overall might be taking place, but in using herself as an example of that, I don't really buy it. Shakes, you clearly know more about newspaper stuff than the three of us combined because you are, along with being the, the coward of beer man, you're also a managing fucking editor at Westward. <laughs> so uh, what are your thoughts about the whole kind of Denver Post-Susan Green debacle? Well, I think that the Post had too many columnists, um, clearly, as a result of, of the, mer- of the you know, as, as a result of the Rocky Mountain News going uh, going under. You know, whether they're tr- whether Su- Susan Green leaving was was a result of uh, things that the Post did in terms of political standpoint, I, I don't think that's really where why she left. On the other hand, you know, daily newspapers are unbelievably top heavy, especially ones that are owned by by corporations with with management and the directives that come down from. Kind of like the Village Voice Media. Uh, well, oh. we, snap, snap. <laughs> Thank you very much. That is correct. Uh, we uh, the Village Voice Media does have a large corporate presence, but. Um, you know, I think Village Voice, to its credit, is is really trying to is really trying to move. Whereas the Denver Post, my my analogy is that it's it's a giant it's a giant battleship, and when you try and when you when you try and stop, slow down, or or turn a giant battleship, it takes a long long time, and it's very difficult to do. And the Denver Post is is not turning its battleship very well. I, you know, one one good example I think is their website, which is is. A disaster to look at. I, I can't stand going to oh, the website. Oh, it's awful. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 just terrible. Um, so, you know, Su- Susan Green leaving may, may be to me is, um, I guess, a symptom of of that more than a political view. Yeah, I'll just go on. This is a point I think that often gets ignored in the debate about the decline of the daily newspaper is the combination of being quote unquote objective and being family friendly. That those sort of sacred cows make the paper, most daily newspapers, unfucking readable. I mean, you pick up so many of them, and they're and this is for years that picks. You know, they're about kids eating ice cream. They're these feel good stories that are just so mind numbingly dull. And then you go, you can you know read. They're the equivalent of family, the family circus. You know, I mean, just swill. And yes, yes. Is Wait, there... you're saying you don't like the family circus, John? <laughs> <Don't>. <laughs> You got all day. Uh, I, I, as much as I love Jeffy's map around the neighborhood, which the, the, it's the same, cute, the same cartoon. John, why do you hate America? That's a real question. You got all day. You got all day. That, I need my own podcast for that. But it, those two sacred cows are why. Why even local news takes a backseat to the 24-hour news cycle and the national political debate because, quite frankly, the national political debate is more interesting. There was something when Village Voice Media took over. Uh, when New Times took over Village Voice and there was that whole debate, especially in New York City, uh, with your boss, Mike Lacey, one, I think it was Tom Robbins, who is a political reporter for The Voice. He said people in New York care more about the Bush administration than they do about the Bloomberg administration. And I think on a national level, we're kind of seeing that. I, I do think people who are socially aware, uh, and I, maybe I'm, I'm too biased, but they care more about national stories than local stories. That's not a good thing. I just think it's the way it is. Yeah, but in the age of, I, I think that that could have worked, um, you know, before the internet and before when people want to know about, you know, big national stories. Like if I want to know about what's going on in Egypt right now or in the Middle East, I'm not going to go to the Village Voice, and I probably wouldn't have gone to them even before this shift happened. I would have gone to the New York Times, to the Washington Post, to all of these other outlets. And once you get online, 
it's it's just a complete open playing field. You can go anywhere, and are you going to go to to an outlet that is ostensibly supposed to be local, but they're you know pontificating on what's going on in some international place? So I can see trying to take really hardcore reporting and making it local, but I also understand the fact that some people just don't care about local issues as much as they care about national ones. It's it's just a matter of you know what is what do you foresee your actual role as when you're a a local outlet when all your reporters are you know in the same city and you don't have a bureau in in DC or in London to to actually get real reporting from all right well does anybody want to chime in on this because we probably should move to back back to beer unless someone I say to... move back to beer all right so the other part of our our beer discussion today is is Denver living up to its beer potential um, Portland, Oregon is generally has more breweries and microbreweries per capita than Denver. I think Denver's still number two. Portland's number one. Um, and why is that? You know, I, I don't I don't know in terms of, of numbers, but but Portland the Portland area has over over forty craft brewers, which is amazing for for a city its size. And and um, part of the reason they have them is because there are little breweries in different neighborhoods, in the same way that that there are bars. Uh, in in d- different neighborhoods, they're they're not trying to be big breweries. They're not trying to be regional breweries. They're they're your local brew pub, and people from the neighborhood walk down and and get their locally made beer. And Denver doesn't quite have that, or Denver doesn't really have that at all yet. But I, I think that's something that might change. I, I have to say, I'm actually not always a fan. That sounds cool, and I'm all for you know buying local. But a lot of times, brew pubs. The beer isn't nearly as good as having a large selection of taps from all over the country is good. That that's that's been my experience, um, and I don't. Well, I guess I'm just a little bit surprised because I was was under the impression that you know Colorado and the Denver area and the Front Range was the capital of uh, small breweries and all of these different um, you know New Belgium and uh, Wincoop and you know we had a. Our mayor, former mayor, now governor, uh, was a uh, owned a brew pub, and so if I'm hearing this correctly, so where where does Denver fall on the actual, or Colorado fall on the on the list of who's the best? Is it Portland then Denver, or are we even further down the list than I? It, defi- it depends how you define best. I know Jonathan and I would probably back him up to a certain degree. Southern California, Sa- San Diego area has some of the best breweries, you know. The, uh, California still, uh, in terms of quality, I think it still has a leg up on us. You know, I, I mean, in, t- in terms of quality and, and quantity, Col- Colorado is, is at the top. Um, California is there. Uh, uh, Oregon is there. And in, in terms of quantity, Colorado is, is also at the top. But what I what's what's interesting is is the culture and and the beer culture of Denver, and, and that's sort of what I think is. Is lacking. I mean, there are great breweries here and and great breweries throughout Colorado, and they make a ton of beer. But in Denver itself, there aren't a lot of bars that have a huge selection of of, of craft of craft beer. Um, that's that's changing over in the last year. There were hundreds and hundreds of, of, of taps tap handles that were added around town at these at these beer bars, um, which which is helping to add to to Denver's beer culture. And there are some smaller brew pubs that are going to be starting in in Denver, which will also help. Add to the culture, but Den- Denver still is a is a capital of the beer world. But you have to when you when you talk about Denver, you also have to talk about Boulder, Fort Collins, and Colorado Springs, which are also amazing little beer towns. And when you if you put them all together, I don't know that the, I don't know that anywhere can can rival that that area. But Denver by itself, 
um, I think still has some, some work ahead of it in terms of being a beer town. Now, when you went to some of these little neighborhood brew pubs in Portland, did you, I mean, did you think that beer was, was that good? Not always. Okay. Some of them are great. Some of them aren't. Some of them carry beer from other, from other places, but, um, yeah, just because it is a neighborhood pub doesn't make, doesn't mean it's making fantastic beer. Yeah. Now, one thing I'm fascinated about is basically how, just how possessive and how territorial, how territorial people get about this. I mean, you, so you wrote about your trip to Portland on uh, westward.com as a Colorado beer man, and you kind of noted that the Colorado still kind of has better kind of quantity and quality of beer, and folks from Portland got all fired up and put all these comments on it. I mean, why do people kind of get so kind of fired up about whether or not their city is a better beer city than some other city? I think it's the same reason they get fired up about Broncos versus the Seahawks or, or something like that. But people are very proud of their beer, and they like the they like having local. You know, people love to have their their local people who they know um, be be the ones that are the best. But you know, surprisingly, there weren't a lot of comments on there defending Denver. Uh, most of it was people from Portland saying, "Yeah, Portland." Yeah. Though it is interesting because I can't think of any. I guess they're all so local and regional, but I can't think of besides Deschutes. Is there anything that's from Portland that's even distributed here that has a national recognition that I, I should know about? From from Portland itself, yes, there is. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, uh, and I'm spacing on them now. Rogue did, is, is one of them that's oh, distributed okay. here. And th- there are a couple Bridgeport? others. Yeah, Bridgeport yeah. is another one. Uh, Deschutes is actually based in Bend, Bend. In okay, Bend yeah. I think. But there there are some of the breweries from, from Oregon that, that are distributed here. There's there's about a half a dozen of them, I think. So, Jonathan, I'm, I'm really wondering what we can do as uh, Denver locals, particularly alcoholics, uh, particularly coming up <laughs> for the next uh, Great American Beer Festival, where mm-hmm. all the different uh, regions are represented in the big hall. Should we, what type of tactics can we use? I'm thinking uh, sabotage or violence that we can do <laughs> to focus on Portland to, to give our brewers a leg up um, in this next uh, annual cycle of, of beer making. I would just say get them as drunk as possible and... and Tell them and get them to give up their secrets. Should we also right. throw? Well, well, okay. Before we wrap up, should we actually throw down the gauntlet right now here on the Denver Diatribe podcast? Should we just say flat out, Portland, you suck as a fucking uh, beer city? Should we? I think we just. I, did. Yeah, I think we just did. All right, let's have some battle raps. Some beer, beer <laughs> battle raps. You just love battle raps. I, I do. Yeah. yeah, I do. Uh, all right, let's go on to love and hate. Um, let's start with you, Joel. What do you got? I think I'm going to hate this week. I'm going to hate on. Chilada, uh, the Budweiser and Clamato I've been drinking all this podcast because it's making me feel kind of gross. That's it. All right. My, I guess, love-hate is going to be a, a love and hate. Baseball opening day is on a Friday this year. It's the first time since, like, 1902 that they've, that they've not opened on a Monday. I love tradition, but I think it's cool that it's opening on a Friday because I work late on Monday and I can never watch the games. So I love the fact that it's open on Friday. Yay, baseball. I'm going to love on delicious, delicious irony. Just a few weeks ago, I was listening to Colorado Public Radio with Ryan Warner. Here it comes. And lo and behold, who did I hear? This week, we have John Dicker (laughs) from Geeks Who Drink. If you guys have not heard this episode, it is truly, truly amazing given the, the, the severe Ryan Warner bashing that has gone on here and come directly from the lips of John Dicker. Who, me? Him sitting there in studio with Ryan Warner. And actually, I thought that it was a pretty good, interesting episode, I have to say. Yep, uh, I agree. 
But I mean, the, the irony, yeah, so be it. But you know, I'll, I'll, I'll admit it. You know, when it comes to getting that much publicity for this company that I've spent the last five years building, I'll take it. Put, put me, put a scarlet W for whore. Uh, on my on my chest. So, uh, do they actually do they actually know uh, or put together all the the bashing? I mean, well, from unconfirmed sources, I've heard that uh, are sources that I can't disclose. I've heard that they do know who we are, <laughs> and that that our criticism, my criticism, has actually shooken things up internally there. Wow. What? Yes. Um, and that I, I was giving apparently giving voice to criticisms that existed among the staff already. But clearly, they are they are much better, nicer people than us. Oh, were the they? Were, they were they were completely gracious and lovely to me, and I'm a bad human being. <laughs> I, I I totally accept that I'm a bad human being. Which is clearly why we're a lot more fun to listen to than uh, <laughs> Colorado Matters. Yep, even when I'm on it. Uh, so, but actually, no. If you listen to the show, they're starting to do like a cooking segment on Fridays. They're they're getting. They're getting a little bit now that you can say they're getting a little less stodgy and orthodox. So, uh, yeah, if you want to send me a thank you card, uh, give me some credit. Did you uh, drink Miller High Life on uh, Colorado Matters? I think not. <laughs> I don't want to drink Miller High Life at any time. But you have to. All right, I haven't even gotten to my love hate, uh, which is uh, I, I'm hating on the phony cult of authenticity. Um, which th- there's a great piece by Ron Rosenbaum, who's like one of my fav- favorite journalists of all time. Uh, about how we seek the authentic in extremes. So, for example, if you're interested in Islam, of course you have to be a Wahhabist and a, and a jihadi because that, that is the most extreme form of Islam and therefore the most authentic. Let's take that down many, many notches, but in the, the sense with foodies that only the true, you know, the true real deal of any sort of cuisine in a some horrible strip mall that no white people ever go to is where you're going to find the best food. So I've been I've been getting into Bon Mai sandwiches and I've been trying to go and find the best ones. And I went to this one on uh, on uh, Federal that I think Adam recommended. And I'll have the name. The name's it's like 1044 South Federal, and it was mediocre. Uh, I mean, really, like the hipster Bon Mai at uh, parallel at parallel 17 and at uh, even Sputnik is better than the authentic. Vietnamese, and I'm a vegetarian, so my opinion is biased here. But don't get caught up in in letting the authentic uh, be the enemy of what's actually really good. It's kind of like that old saying: just because the New York Times likes it doesn't mean it sucks. Uh, same thing here. That is that is not neither a love nor a hate. Just some words of wisdom, if it even makes any sense at this point. Stay, that, stay tuned next week when uh, Dicker follows up the third part in his ongoing series on Bon Mai. I, oh, you think I won't do? You think I won't do it? <laughs> Oh, but I will. All right, that's all the Bon Mai bullshit we have time for on the Diatribe. We will see you next week. We're on the web at denverdiatribe.com. You can follow us at Denver Diatribe on Twitter. For Jared, Joel, and Jonathan, I'm John Dicker, and we are out. <laughs>